0: You are listening to the SCC Cast, weekly teaching and preaching from Springview Community Church. Find us on the web at www.springviewcc.org. We are located at 12881 Andersonville Road in Davisburg, Michigan. We welcome you to come as you are to experience a friendly worship setting with biblical preaching, teaching, and application. Now here's Pastor Ben Glubker. Good to be back with you, sharing God's word with you. We are in week four of seven on a sermon series entitled Make Every Effort, the, the duty and promise of spiritual growth. So let me encourage you to turn in your Bible to Second Peter chapter one. Second Peter one. I'll read the first 11 verses. This is God's word. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord And Savior Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, now as we look again to your word, as we hear the call to make every effort to supplement our faith with these virtues, Father, we we want to obey and heed that call. We want to make every effort, but Father, the thing is too great for us in our own strength and power. We need your help. We need need your help to understand what it is you're calling us to. We need your help to believe that it really matters, that it's really worth it. We need your help and strength to embrace it and pursue these virtues wholeheartedly, making every effort. Father, if we make any progress, it will only be because you are gracious to us, kind and strengthening toward us. And so I pray you would do that even this morning. As we consider your word now, I pray that we would listen to your word in a way that honors you, and we respond in faith and obedience. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we consider, from verse 6, supplement your faith with steadfastness, with steadfastness. or, or The Christian Standard Bible says, supplement your faith with endurance. The NIV puts it, add to your faith perseverance. Well, two challenges, it seems to me, right out of the gate with this. The first one is, it doesn't feel that urgent to us. And the second one is, we don't really want to grow in steadfastness. You know, last time, we considered supplementing our faith with self-control, and we all feel that. You don't have to be a Christian to be concerned about self-control. We look at our lives and we know we need it. Just think about how many of our New Year's resolutions hang on self-control, I want to eat less junk food. I need more self-control. I want to get up earlier. I need more self-control. I want to spend money more wisely. I need more self-control. I want to exercise more. I need more self-control. We know we need that. We feel that. We don't need Jesus to feel that we need self-control. We understand Paul's, the Apostle Paul's exasperation in Romans 7 where he says, "I, I don't understand what I do. I don't do the things I want to do and I do the things I don't want to do. We know how that feels. Self-control feels important. It feels like a key to getting the life that we want. But steadfastness? Steadfastness feels more like, hey, that might be good to have if I ever need it, and I hope I don't. It doesn't feel that urgent. We admire steadfastness, But we don't really want to grow in it. Uh, General Thomas Jackson, at the first battle of Bull Run in the American Civil War, in the face of a withering assault, uh, led his uh, group of soldiers from Virginia. And at some point in the battle, in the heat of it, uh, General Barnard B. and his troop from South Carolina came back complaining about how hard they were being pushed and Jackson told him to turn around and fight, and so he turned around and exhorted his soldiers. He said to them, Look at Jackson, there, standing like a stone wall. And of course, you know the nickname that General Thomas Jackson takes from that, General Stonewall Jackson. And we admire the steadfastness. Jackson's standing there like a stone wall. We admire it, but I'm not sure we're looking to get it that kind of steadfastness, because that comes always at a cost. We wouldn't admire General Jackson if he was standing in front of us in the line at McDonald's. Look at Jackson, standing there, staring at the menu like a stone wall. We wouldn't admire that. But you don't get nicknames like Stonewall for standing there. Now You've got to stand under fire. To get a nickname like that. To develop that kind of steadfastness and perseverance. It only comes when life's taking shots at you. See, the word Peter uses here for steadfastness in 2 Peter 1 means the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty or trouble. Trouble, The capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty or trouble. Now, let's be honest, difficulty and trouble are things we are desperately trying to avoid. I'm not sure we really want to grow in steadfastness. But Peter says, no, you need more of this. You need to grow in this. You need to add this. Supplement your faith with more steadfastness. Make every effort to supplement your faith with steadfastness. The word itself literally means to remain or stay under. To stay under. When I was a kid... We had a uh, station wagon, a long brown Chevy Caprice Classic station wagon that our family drove around. Um, The third seat was front facing, not rear facing, in case you're wondering or had a station wagon of your own. The rear facing ones were the coolest, but we didn't have that. Um, And so, but one of the things we would do. Uh, my brother and sister and I would do is we would um, after my mother would pick us up from school She would often stop at the grocery store and say you stay in the car You could do that back then you guys stay in the car and she'd go in and so we'd sit in the car looking for something To do and one of the things we like to do is the the middle seat the second seat uh, folded down like this and left this big area and so one of the one of the kind of games challenges we would play is we would make someone lay down on the floor of the back seat. Of course, you had the transmission hump in your back. But we'd lay down on the floor in the back seat and then fold the seat down over top of them. And it wouldn't crush you. Anybody else ever done that? It wouldn't crush you, but it's right here. You know, you, it's right here. You can't move much. You can't roll over. You can't, you know, if your foot itches, you can't reach it. It's just kind of there. And, of course, as soon as you fold the seat down, your sister and brother jump on the top of the seat so you can't push it back up. Right? And it's always preceded by, you know, my sister, friends, it's always preceded by, if I yell, you have to get off. Oh, I will. I'll jump right off. If, if it bothers you to be under there, right, I'll jump right off. And uh, so you'd put it down and you'd lay there. And if, if you're the one under there, you'd say, it's not a big deal. I'm not in pain. I'm just laying here. It's fine. But it's right there. And, and eventually, if you're sitting on top, your sister yells, all right, let me out. And you'd say, take it easy. It's, you're fine. It doesn't hurt. No, let me out, you know. And she'd say, I know it doesn't hurt. I just don't like it. I just don't like it. My son John would love to be stuck. No, he would not. I just don't like it. Well, that's, that's how we feel when we're under difficulty or trouble. Whether it's real suffering, real pain, real trouble, or if it's, if it's something lesser, it's just we don't like it. What we want to do is get out from under it. What do I have to do to get out from under this trouble and make it go away? Now, no one teaches us to think that. That's very natural. It's difficult. It's painful. It can be exhausting to be steadfast. And the natural impulse is, I've got to get out from under this. The steadfast person remains under Naturally, we think, i got to get out from under this trouble. So the spiritually unstable, unsteadfast person says, I don't need this kind of trouble. I'm getting out. The spiritually steadfast person says, this is where I'm supposed to be. I'm sticking it out. The unstable person says, this job's getting hard. I'm going to see if I can find something easier. The steadfast person says, this job is important. I'm going to see it done. The unstable person says, this ministry is a lot of work. I'm not doing this anymore. The steadfast person says, this ministry is valuable. I'm not giving up on it. The unstable person says, this marriage is frustrating. I'm out of here. The steadfast person says, this frustrating marriage is precious. I'm not going anywhere. The unstable person says, I didn't know it would be so hard to follow Jesus. I think I'm going to cool it for a little while. The steadfast person says, Following Jesus is always worth it. It'll only be hard for a little while. We need steadfastness. And it requires conviction. It requires courage. It requires strength in the face of adversity. And it is costly. It's costly to stay under it and not bail. But it brings enormous rewards. See, the spiritually steadfast person gains something that the spiritually unstable person never can and never will. Turn back just a few pages to James chapter 1. Just a couple pages back, James chapter 1. Verse 2, he says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces what? Steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Perfect and complete. The word there is often translated mature. You see, you you face trials, you respond in faith, it produces steadfastness, and you become mature. Children cut and run when it gets hard, they tend to take the easy way out, they shirk duty, they avoid pain, they're immature. And James is saying, when you see spiritual steadfastness, you're looking at a spiritual grown-up. This is a spiritual grown-up. They've been through the struggle, through the trials. They've responded in faith. They've stood their ground. They've remained under it as God has kept them there. Those are the spiritual grown-ups. Those are the ones who've reached a kind of spiritual maturity who are, James says, lacking nothing. This has big implications for how we think about following Christ. Because God's plan for his people is to grow them up, to mature them, to make them more like Jesus. And the spiritual grown-ups are the ones who are steadfast through trials and suffering. That's how you become steadfast. There's no easy track, there's no pain-free track to spiritual steadfastness. Trouble is how he works it into us. And that means that trials and suffering are coming. You you can't avoid them. They are coming. We tend to be concerned about how we can avoid trials and suffering. And understandably so. But God is concerned with how we handle trials and suffering. We see them as a kind of punishment. God sees it as a kind of gift to grow us up. That's why James says here, count it all joy. Good for you. As you stand up and endure and remain under these troubles in faith. Count it all joy. Peter puts it even more strongly. Turn back now to 1 Peter. We started off at 2 Peter. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter is written to essentially the same people that 2 Peter is written to. The same people that Peter tells in 2 Peter to supplement their faith with steadfastness. But in 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 6, he says this, In this you rejoice, 1 Peter 1, 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So here we are rejoicing in trials. So, verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith More precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter talks here about the tested genuineness of your faith is more precious than gold. Here's what he's saying. Gold is tested by fire. You put it up to the flame, up to the heat, removes the impurities, proves its authenticity, And faith, Peter's saying, is tested the same way, against the fire and heat of adversity, trials and suffering. False faith won't survive the troubles. It cuts and runs. It won't stay under them. Real faith will. It stands steadfast against the heat and against the trouble. And to find that out, faith is real. It withstood the troubles. Peter says, that's more precious than gold. See, gold represents a kind of hope. When I was a kid, we went, uh, took a school field trip to a museum. I don't remember where it was. But I, what I remember about the museum is they had in a very secure display case a bar of gold, and roughly the size and shape of a large ice cream sandwich. Worth a lot more than an ice cream sandwich. And actually, they had, uh, above this bar of gold in display, a digital display that was keeping track somehow this is pre-Internet day, so I'm not quite sure how they were doing this um, but um, they uh, keeping dis- of the price of gold. And so as you went in there, it would change periodically the value of this bar of gold based on the fluctuating price. Uh, of gold on whatever market does, uh, does that. And so I, it seems like it was, you know, this bar of gold is worth like $145,000 or something at the time. No idea what it would be today. But, but gold is valuable for us. You know, suppose you were to discover that, it, you know, the, the worker comes up and says, hey, we got a whole box of these in the back. You want to take them home? And uh, y- yeah, that'd be wonderful, right? Look what I, just think of what I could do with that. Now, 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 what would you do with a box full of gold bullion? Besides probably not be able to carry it yourself. What would you do with that, right? Well, you're not going to put it down like pavers on your front walk. You're probably not going to melt it down into jewelry because you don't really want the gold. What the gold represents for you is hope. I'm going to cash that in. And with what I get from that gold, I'm all set. My future is secure. I'm going to be able to buy Everything I need, I don't have to worry anymore. It's not really gold I'm after. It's the hope and security that the gold, I believe, will provide. Peter says, yeah, gold's precious, but you know what's even more precious? Faith that stood the test and withstood the fire. Why? Gold could help you for a while. It might last you the rest of your life which really isn't that long. But, Peter says, if your faith is real, that's precious because that means you have Christ, and that will last you. That will give you hope, certain hope, forever. Hey, I got gold. Well, good for you. I got a tested and sure faith in Christ. You're good to go forever. So the tested genuineness of your faith, Peter says, that's more precious than gold. That's something. It's precious to God. Why? Because what it says is, God, I can trust you. You're worth it. I'm willing to stand under this trouble and stick by you because you stick by me. That kind of faith is precious to God because it says, hey, you're worthy, God, and he is. It's precious to us. It's precious to us because it, it tells us... I, I persevered through that. With God's help, I persevered through that trial and trouble. I easily could have bailed, but I didn't. God's doing something in my life at heart. And that gives me confidence and joy and stronger hope. And that test of genuineness is valuable, not just to God, not just to us, but to others. Because others see that example. And it gives them strength and encouragement and hope as well. Here in 1 Peter He wants them to be steadfast in the face of suffering and persecution and trouble. But but we started off in 2 Peter. And in 2 Peter, the focus seems to be a little different. It's not suffering so much in 2 Peter that they need to stand steadfastly against, but something else, something more subtle, and therefore perhaps even more dangerous. Look at 2 Peter Chapter 3, the very end of the letter. 2 Peter is largely about dealing with false teachers. And in verse 15 and 16, he talks about the writings of Paul, the Apostle Paul, and how uh, these false teachers will twist and manipulate them to say something other than what Paul meant. In verse 17, he says, finishing out this letter, Peter says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, knowing that they're going to twist the scriptures, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. Uh, They're standing up till now in Christ. They're bearing the trouble. But he says, watch out. Watch out for the error that could knock you down and make you unstable, make you not steadfast. What kind of error could carry people away like this? Look back at the beginning of chapter 3. He says, this is now, verse 1, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, and they will say, here's the error, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. That's the error. The error they're saying is, Jesus isn't coming back. God isn't going to return. Where is he? We've been waiting an awful long time. And things just keep going. Ever since creation, things are always unchanged. And everyone says, no, God is coming back. And he doesn't come back. And he doesn't come back. And and so these false teachers are teaching Jesus is not coming back. God is not going to return. And what kind of error does that lead to? Jesus isn't coming back. So there's no judgment coming. So we can do whatever we want. We'll never have to answer for it. And that's a popular false teaching. Wait a minute, I can do whatever I want? You can sell a religion like that. Paul says, don't let that knock you down. Don't let that make you unstable. It will. And what that ends up looking like, turn back a little further, chapter 2, he'll describe these teachers and what happens. Chapter 2, verse 14, he says of them, these false teachers, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin, They entice unsteady souls who aren't steadfast. They entice them. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. These false teachers come. Jesus is not coming back. God's not coming back. We can do whatever we want. And what it looks like is insatiable desire for sin. And these false teachers say, feel free. Go right ahead. Peter says, They're enticing unsteady souls. They're knocking them from their stability. You need steadfastness, not just in the face of suffering and trouble, but in the face of sin and temptation, too. Suffering can take out your faith. Sin can take it out, too. Trials can take out your faith. So can temptation. In both cases, you have to stand steadfast so how do we get that how do we grow in steadfastness against troubles and temptations against suffering and sin how do we grow avoiding it just isn't possible look you you will make every effort all of us we will make every effort to try to avoid trouble and trials and sin and temptation We will will imagine, maybe there's a way I can organize my life and and take suffering and sin right out of the equation. There's not. There just isn't. It's just part of life in a sinful and fallen world. And if it's not part of your life right now, hang on, because it's coming. When they do, will you be steadfast? What's the key to standing strong? Look back to Hebrews chapter 10. Back a few pages again. Hebrews chapter 10. If we had time, we could profitably go slowly through three or four chapters here to see how the writer teases all of this out. Hebrews is all about how Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the sacrifice for sin that the Old Testament sacrifices pointed forward to. Jesus is the one who dies in the place of sinners. His death really can forgive sins. He's the substitute. And so before chapter 10 in verse 19, he's laying all this out. And then in chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, he, he starts drawing out implications. He says in chapter 10, verse 22, Because of what Jesus has done, let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. In verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. In other words, let's be steadfast. And then in verse 24, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, helping each other be steadfast. He's concerned here. What about? About sin and suffering. See, look at verse 26. After he encourages them these things, he says, For if we go on sinning, deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He says, we're going to draw near to God. We're going to hold fast our confession because we can't continue in sin. Sin is going to want to knock us down. Temptation is going to come and try to destabilize us and cause us to fall away from our faith. He's concerned about sin. But then in the next paragraph, look at verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Suffering's coming too. And Paul, or the writer here says, look back, remember the struggle you had with suffering. Listen how he describes this, verse 33. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, the coming one will come and not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Because we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He says, no, when suffering comes, you have to persevere. You have to stand steadfast. You have to endure. Remarkable what he says in here. He says you, you publicly stood with those. Approach. Verse thirty-four. You you had compassion on those in prison. You see, these Christians would get arrested because of their faith, put in prison. And in prison, often, it's not like uh, much worse than prison is today, right? Often their needs were not cared for. If they didn't have friends or somebody would come and supply them with food and need things they need, they often would just go without. So these Christians, uh, Christians would get arrested and put in prison, and other Christians would say, "We, we could go, we should go and take them food. But if we do, everybody will know that we're with them, and then they're liable to come and persecute us too. So what did they decide? They had compassion on those in prison. They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. In other words, they said, okay, we're going to go. We're going to try to meet their needs. And as they do that, they're exposed as believers too. They lose their property. They lose their homes. They might lose their freedom. And they knew it. They knew it was probably going to happen, and they did it joyfully. Why? Since they knew that they themselves had a better possession and abiding one. We're going to lose this, but look what we're going to gain. Look what we're going to gain. That's a hard attitude to have. Think about Peter himself. Remember Peter himself as Jesus is arrested? What does Peter do? He's around people, and a servant girl says, hey, aren't you with that criminal? What does he say? No. Three times, I don't know the guy. Cursing, I don't know that man. The exact opposite of what is called for here. Peter knows what it's like to fall in this. I don't want to identify with him. The two, costly These believers know the cost. They do it anyway. They don't like suffering any more than you or I do. They're no different than we are. They don't want to see their property plundered. They just know they have a better possession and an abiding one. The alternative, verse 39, are those who shrink back and are destroyed, the ones who don't pass the test. Paul says, No. He says, We're the ones who have faith and preserve our souls. And right there is the key to steadfastness, the foundation on which it's built, faith. Faith is the key. See, here's the big idea this morning. The people who are growing in steadfastness are the ones who have the spiritual vision to see the future promise on the other side of the present pain. The people growing in steadfastness are the ones who have the spiritual vision to see the future promise on the other side of the present pain if all you see is the present pain and i know sometimes it's hard to see anything else sometimes it looms so large and so severe and so painful that it's all we can see all we can feel it feels like it's the only thing we know but to be spiritually steadfast we have to have the vision to see however faint however feeble, however far away it may seem, the future promise on the other side of the present pain. Faith is the key. So we read Hebrews 11 earlier in the service. I won't read all through it again, but look at just a few points. Chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is persevering, convicting about things that are not seen. Or verse 6. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him, please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Faith sees greater reward in God. And then He gives examples. Look at verses 9 and 10. Talking about Abraham by faith in verse 9. He went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land. Living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham moves forward in faith. He can't see exactly how that's going to work out. But he's looking forward. Look at verse 13. All of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them. Spiritual eyes. They haven't received it, but they've seen it. And greeted them from afar, and have acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. They persevere because they see, even from afar, the future promise on the other side of the present pain. Later in verse 24, we see Moses. By faith, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking... To the reward. Moses said, Reward now? The son of Pharaoh's daughter? Riches, security, safety now or later? And he chooses later. I'll choose pain now, promise later, because the promise is way more valuable than the pain is hard. So at the end of the chapter, verse 39, all these, though commended through their faith, didn't receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. The people growing in steadfastness are the ones who have the spiritual vision to see the future promise on the other side of the present pain. What exactly is it that they see? What exactly is it that sits squarely in the sights of the spiritually steadfast? Well, chapter 12 starts not by what they see, but rather by who sees them. Look at chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. All these heroes of the faith are a kind of witness to our fight and our struggle to live with steadfast faith. He may mean that they're witnesses to our struggle, that they see us in our struggle. He may also mean that they bear witness to us, saying, it can be done, you can stand steadfastly, we did. But these cloud of witnesses observe our struggle to stand steadfast in faith. In May of 1962, uh, an 82-year-old general named Douglas MacArthur gave the commencement address at West Point, the military academy for the United States Army. MacArthur, of course, was a war hero uh, from both the World Wars and the Korean War. 82 years old, he died less than two years later. He was given at this event uh, one of their highest honors, a medal for outstanding service to the country, and he gave the commencement address. And he organized his speech around that institution's sacred motto, duty, honor, country. And over and over through the speech, duty, honor, country. If you think about it, in a lot of ways, the glory of a soldier is his steadfastness. A soldier that fights for personal gain gets no glory. He's a mercenary. Duty, honor, country is all about exchanging present comfort and security for future glory and goodness for others. It's about maintaining a legacy of courageous and steadfast service. Duty, honor, country is. And MacArthur urged this legacy of steadfastness on these graduating cadets. Here's what he said. He says, you are the leaven which binds together the entire fabric of our national system of defense. From your ranks come the great captains who hold the nation's destiny in their hands the moment the war toxin sounds. The long gray line has never failed us. Were you to do so, a million ghosts dressed in olive drab, in brown khaki, in blue and gray would rise from their white crosses, thundering those magic words, duty, honor, country. Scriptures tell us here in Hebrews 12, you are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. They've gone before you in this fight for faith. What are they focused on? The soldier is focused on duty and honor and country. But the Christian, it says, verse 2, looks to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He says, "Look, you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. So, so throw off, lay aside every weight, and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to." Jesus, he's the example. He's already gone this way. He's already tread down this path. He's already suffered. He's already endured the shame. He's already borne the pain. He is our example. He's not asking us to go where he hasn't already been. He's also not asking us to go where he won't go with us now. He is our example. And he's our reward. So, fix our eyes on Jesus. What then do we do? First of all, expect trials and temptations. Expect them. You will make every effort to structure your life in a way, somehow, if possible. I don't want trouble. I don't want trial. I don't want temptation. That's naive. And we all want to go there. And that's not the world we live in. Expect trial and temptation. Recalibrate your expectations. Trials are likely, temptation is certain. Will you stand? Because temptation is certain and constant. Steadfastness is an issue for us this week. We have an enemy who will, if he can, topple your faith, destabilize your faith this week. Always scheming, always plotting. Expect trials and temptations. Secondly, know, remember, and rest in God's promises. Remember, the ones that are spiritually steadfast, are the ones who have the spiritual vision to see the future promises on the other side of the present pain. You must know those promises. You must know them and know them well and remember them in trouble and rest in them. Trouble sometimes looms, temptation looms so big, it's all we can see. It blots out the sun of God's promises and obscures them from sight. Although we see them from the far, we have to see them. We have to know that they're there and to remember them in trouble and rest in them. Third, don't try to stand alone. Don't try to stand alone. Back in Hebrews 10, because of the gospel, he urges us to draw near with full hearts, to stand steadfastly and to not forsake assembling together. Because we need each other to stand. When my troubles loom big, I need you to remind me of God's promises. Remind me of the joy, the certain joy and hope on the other side of the present trouble and temptation. Here's the fourth thing. Pursue joy and satisfaction in Jesus today. Jesus is our example. He is also the reward. The temporary pleasures of sin or the temporary relief that comes from jumping out from under trial and trouble when we shouldn't is only going to be overcome with a superior joy in Christ. We, we have to delight in Him more than in our sin. You recall Paul in Philippians 3. He says, I count everything else as dumb. Everything else is worthless compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So we need to pursue joy and satisfaction in Jesus today. If we spend all of our time delighting in temporary things, however good they may be, though they may be gifts from God and our, every good thing comes from God, when the moment of trouble comes, if we haven't cultivated a delight and joy in Christ, we will fall. And so, when trouble and temptation aren't staring you hard in the face and aren't overwhelming you with pressure, well, that's the time. That's the time to press into Christ, to find joy and delight and satisfaction in Him. Supplement your faith with steadfastness. Father, I pray for grace and help. Every impulse we have runs from trouble, runs from difficulty. We, we want things to be easy and comfortable. And, and by your grace, many things in our lives are. You've been exceedingly kind to us. And yet in this sinful fallen world, we will and do face trouble. And we most certainly face temptation. And I pray for for my own soul and for every person here that they would stand steadfast against the trouble and against the temptation. That they wouldn't be destabilized. That they wouldn't lose their faith. That they wouldn't trade that you'd give them vision to see that the future promises are way more glorious than the present is painful. Father, we need that kind of faith, and we know that that is a gift from you and is a work itself of your grace. So, Father, help us. Help us to believe your promises. Help us to believe and delight in Jesus Christ, that he is worthy of all our joy and all our hope and give us strength. Father, this week, some people in here will face significant trouble, significant challenges to their faith. And so I pray. I pray for strength and grace. And I pray for each of us a growing delight and a growing rest and a growing trust in Jesus. Draw us close to him. Hold us tightly in your hand. Protect us for your glory and our joy, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.